As we prepare to come to the communion table in a few minutes, we thank you, our Father, for your grace that has brought salvation. In your kindness to us, you have revealed to us the extent and magnitude and depth of our sin, our neediness, our brokenness, our emptiness, our spiritual lack of qualifications and ability to represent ourselves before you. And not only have you revealed to us that we are vanquished in ourselves, you have also revealed to us the magnitude of your grace. And a grace that has brought salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, not only sending him, but designing a salvation through him for us. So that you might take us who are broken and weak, empty, worthy only of wrath, and regenerating us, and sanctifying us, and making us your sons, and making us lovely not only to one another, but to you, and desiring us, and promising us an eternity in heaven with you. What grace indeed. That grace, as we've already affirmed, in song and prayer and word and scripture is only through the person of Jesus Christ. Might we be enraptured with him today, emboldened with him and passionate for the carrying of the gospel message to the nations. For if if we have been reminded of one thing particularly this past week, it is that the nations desperately need Christ. The nations are broken without Him. Only injustice and unrighteousness is served without Him. And might you, in your kindness, Preserve your gospel message, not just around the world in general, but this week particularly. We pray for Afghanistan and the church that is there and for perseverance for the believers who are there and for the setting up of the kingdom of Christ so that he might rule over Afghanistan and America and every place in between. And we long for that day. And until that day, might you give us a passion with this gospel message of Christ to not only carry it across the street, but to take it and to send others to go around the world. For there is nothing else of hope in this world. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Some sermon topics invariably provoke, stimulate, unintentionally guide people to perhaps experience a sense of profound guilt 
I can say, and this is not the topic of the day, but I could say, today we want to talk about prayer. And instantly, like three quarters of you went, oh, I don't pray enough. I feel guilty already. Or I could say the topic of the morning is evangelism. And you go, oh man, that's a double whammy. I know I don't share the gospel enough. Similarly, sermons on missions lead to questions like, should I go? And I really don't want to go. But I feel like I need to go. And especially when missionaries show up and they show pictures of sunsets over wheat fields. And they ask the question, the fields are ready for a harvest. Will you go? I was in college the first time I saw one of those. And I think I've been carrying a residue of guilt ever since. Does that resonate with some of you? Over the next three Sundays, we're going to be talking about missions. But not with the goal of stimulating guilt. It is with the goal of stimulating passion and gratitude. It's important to think about what God thinks about missions because the word missions is used in so many ways that are disconnected from what God thinks about when he thinks about missions. The social gospel now in many categories or in many places is missions. Social justice has become synonymous with missions. And outreach or what might be called mercy ministry is often uh, tangled with missions. Evangelism is called missions, and I would make a distinction between evangelism and missions, though they are related. Some churches even talk about the local church as doing missional ministry. And so the question is, what is missions? And as we think about missions, what, what should we be thinking about? And do all of us do it? And how do all of us do it? And how are we connected to it? How should we be connected to it? And how can we think about it in ways that don't propel us to guilt, but propel us to joy and gratitude. And that's my task as we come to the end of Romans 15, because the book of Romans is really a book about missions. Paul wants to take the gospel to Spain. He's been based in Antioch, and Antioch has served as the launching point for his ministry primarily in Asia Minor, but now he wants to go westward and north into Spain, and Antioch isn't a good place for a base of ministry. It's too far removed, so he wants Rome to serve as the base of ministry. He wants the Romans to send him. And so everything he has written in Romans is about convincing them of the uniqueness or the, 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 the orthodoxy of his message, the uniqueness of the ministry that he wants to carry into Spain and his desire that they support him. So everything he's been saying in the first 15 chapters really is to stimulate missions. It's all about missions and the priority of missions. In verses 22 to 29, Paul is going to talk about his vision for ministry, uh, for missions. So what what is missions about? How is missions established? What's the connection of the local church to missions? In verses 30 to 33, he's going to talk about the power of mission. How, how is mission invigorated and where's the strength for mission? In these verses, verses 17 to 21, the apostle is going to talk about the message of mission. What do we take to the nations? What are we excited about as we go overseas? 
And Paul is going to say simply this. The message of missions is the singular gospel of Christ. As Paul goes overseas, as Paul invigorates new church, invigorates churches and plants new churches and then goes into new territories, he has one message. Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. What he tells others in his missionary ventures is Jesus Christ. What he wants to do when he goes on missionary ventures is preach. And what he wants to preach is Jesus Christ. Why does he want to preach Jesus Christ? Paul gives us six reason, six reasons for preaching Christ alone as the missionary message. The message of missions is the singular gospel of Christ. And we, along with Paul, preach Christ because of what Christ has done in past preaching. Because of what Christ has done through past preaching. Verse 17. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting. Paul's object in boasting is Jesus Christ. And when Paul says, I have something to brag about, I have something to boast about, it is exactly what it sounds like. Paul is putting on braggadocio. He is, he is engaging in pride and he is unashamed of his pride. But he makes it absolutely clear that his pride is in nothing about himself. It is nothing in what he has accomplished. It is not in anything that he is. His pride is not personal. His pride is rooted in Jesus Christ. And the end of the verse, not only Christ, but in the things pertaining to God. I think we can even just go back to the previous few verses And remember what some of the things are that God has done through the preaching of Christ. So verse 14, he he reminds the Romans, I'm, I'm convinced that you're full of goodness, that you are morally good, that you do good things, that you're being transformed by the gospel to do good things. You're, you're filled with all knowledge. You have the knowledge about what to do in ministry and you're able to admonish, to exhort, to teach, to train, to disciple, to counsel one another. God, God, has worked those things in you. That's the grace that was given to me, verse 15, from God to to preach these things to you. and, And that's what has happened in you. And so he says, I've gone as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. I, I've ministered. I was, I was a priest, as it were, of the gospel of God. I, I, so that, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is this is God's work. I've I've worked, but it's it's God. It's the Spirit. It's Christ. It's all about Him. Paul would agree with other biblical writers that there is no place for boasting personally. So, chapter three, verse twenty-seven. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. There's no place for boasting. Not in self. But in Christ, there is much room for boasting. 
Paul is not asserting that he has done anything that is remarkable. He is simply looking back at the work of Christ and what Christ has done through the faithful preaching of the Scriptures and of the Gospel message. He he is saturated with the power of what Christ can do when Christ is preached. Now, as, as we talk about someone who boasts, get your get in mind a picture of someone that you know that wrestles with bragging and and boasting. And what does that person do? They talk about it incessantly. Talk to someone who has a new grandchild. You know, it used to be that if somebody had a grandchild, you know, they'd pull out their wallet and they would have a limited number of of pictures that they could show you. My wallet doesn't even have a place for pictures anymore. Because now we have phones and we don't show five pictures of the grandchildren. We show 5,500 pictures of the grandchildren. It is nauseating. Won't you please stop talking? That's Paul. About Christ. He's absolutely overwhelmed with Christ. In fact, look what he says. Verse 16. I am made a minister of Christ Jesus. Verse 17. In Christ Jesus... I have found reason for boasting. Verse 18, I don't presume to speak about anything except what Christ has done. Verse 19, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Verse 20, I was inspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build another man's foundation. Verse 21, they who had news of, had no news of him, Christ shall see. They who have not heard of Christ, shall understand it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ. And what's he preaching about Christ? He is recognizing in verse 17 that Christ has changed lives. Notice what he says, I have found reason for boasting. What's the reason? In fact, the text is... A little more stark than that. The Greek says, I, I have, I have boasting. I have an ability to boast because I have seen what Christ can do. And he goes back to verse 16 and he sees what Christ has done among the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel message of Jesus Christ that transforms, transforms Jews. It transforms Gentiles. It did it then. It does it today. In the last two months, we've heard two of our missionaries come from the Middle East and tell us what the gospel of Christ has done to change Gentiles who are opposed to Christ by birth to become lovers of Christ through rebirth. That's the message that Jack and Susie Workman have shared with us many times about how the gospel is going through Cambodia and changing people's lives. It's what Keith and I have seen as we've traveled and gone to Russia and other places, Israel, and seeing what God does 
One church that Dan Kirk and I traveled to in Irkutsk in Siberia, city of one to two million people. After World War II, it was the only evangelical church in a city of over one million people. And for 40 years, it remained the singular, only evangelical church in that city in Siberia. And then God used that church to saturate Siberia. And that church in 45 years has planted, excuse me, in 40 years has planted 40 churches. Why? Because the gospel of Christ has gone out. It's changed people and we have reason for boasting. This is what David Gibson has reported about, about the progress of the gospel and PNG and how the scriptures are changing people's lives. And, and you can't hardly talk to David without seeing him well up with tears over what God is doing through the gospel. We preach Christ because we have seen what the preaching of Christ has done through the ages and through the world to change people's lives. We preach Christ because of what Christ has done in past preaching. Secondly, why do we preach Christ? Because we preach Christ because we only have Christ. We only have Christ. There is nothing else. Verse 18, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished. The reason why Paul only preaches Christ is because he doesn't want to be presumptuous to preach something else that is false. The word presumptuous means, I don't want to be bold, I don't want to be daring to preach about anything except what Christ has worked through me. And notice he doesn't say, my ministry is nothing, I've never accomplished anything. But he is quick to point out that anything that he has accomplished has only been through Christ. He doesn't say, I'm nothing, God has done nothing through me. We don't, we don't honor Christ when we say, God hasn't used me. Brothers and sisters, if you have a spiritual gift, Christ should use you and he will use you. And you do well to say, this is what he has done through me. Pointing not, at yourself, but pointing at Christ. So Paul doesn't say, I've not anything. But he does say, I have not done anything on my own. Anything I've done is only because of Christ. I'm not going to speak boldly about myself. I'm not going to be speak boldly about what I've accomplished. I'm not going to speak boldly about how many churches I planted. I'm only going to speak boldly about Christ. About Him I will speak presumptuously. Another way to say that is simply this. I am happy to talk about Jesus Christ. I love to talk about the gospel and what the gospel does. In fact, that's the very first thing that the apostle does in this letter. Verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It's all about the gospel. 
It's all about Jesus Christ. So verse 15, chapter 1, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Gentile. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Christ and nothing else. All that has been given to Paul and all that Paul has accomplished in the ministry is only because of Jesus Christ. One of the great tragedies of missions that has emanated from America is that we have exported many of the worst things of American Christianity overseas. We've taken the prosperity gospel and we've taken charismatic abuses and we have set those up as normative and we, we have led many astray. Brothers and sisters, it's all about the gospel. When we go, when Grace Bible Church goes, we are committed to one thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're committed to gospel preaching, church building ministries that exalt Christ and give people a reason for hope that is rooted in Christ only. We preach Christ because we only have Christ. We preach Christ because of how Christ changes all people. You noticing something on your outline, by the way? Yeah, you might peek ahead and you might be guessing right. It's all about Christ. You know, Christ took the Apostle Paul and radically transformed him. But what Christ did in Paul was not unique to him. But it's the kind of thing that he did in all people. So as Paul preached, verse 18, it resulted, the end of verse 18 says, in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Paul preached and the result was obedience. That's normative. That's what the gospel always does when people believe it. When people believe the gospel, it produces obedience. It produces transformation. It produces change. Romans 6, verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. You're obedient to Christ. To believe Christ, to have faith in Christ, is to say, I'm obedient to Him. I'm a follower of Him. And that is exactly what the Romans were. The Romans were known for their obedience. So chapter 1, he he affirms them and how they have trusted Christ and that has produced obedience. Speaking about Christ, he says in chapter 1, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So faith produces obedience. In chapter 16, the end of the book, verse 19 the report of your obedience 
has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. So you have faith and that faith has produced obedience. Christ changed them. Took them from being enslaved to sin to now being enslaved to righteousness. And he says how they were changed in a particular way by word and deed. What they said and what they did. Everything about them. What came out of their mouths and how they acted. How they conducted themselves. Where they went. What they bought. Who they served. Who they fellowshiped with. Everything about them was changed. We might say it this way. They were changed from the inside out. The heart that produces good words and the heart produces the good actions was changed. Everything about them, inside and out, was changed. And notice again how Paul emphasizes who was changed, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles. Of the Gentiles. Not just the Jews. The promise was made to the Jews way back in Genesis 12. The promise that God would save a people and redeem a people. That was a Jewish promise. And the Gentiles are crafted into that promise. And God changes even Gentiles. God has a chosen people. Israel. He's going to fulfill his promises to Israel. But God doesn't, quote-unquote, play favorites, at least the way we think about it, and say, this is only for the Jews and I'm excluding everyone else. No, He says, this is for the Jews so that it goes to everyone else. And I want everyone in. He is gracious to change any and all who will believe in Him. Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul couldn't be clear that if we want to help people either at home or abroad, only Christ will change them. I won't say I went to seminary in the dark ages, but it's been a while now. It wasn't another century, and it was more than a few decades ago. And um, I remember a few things about seminary. I had a roommate for a year that was able to remember, even years afterwards, every chapel speaker, what they preached on, what passage they used, and what tie they wore. Astounding. I was lucky to remember what I had for breakfast that day. So I don't remember much from those chapel messages. But there are a couple that stand out. And I'll never forget David Walls. Quoting R.A. Torrey from the beginning of the 20th century. And he exhorted us with what Torrey exhorted the church over a hundred years ago. Preach any Christ but a crucified Christ and you will not reach men for long. I hear David Walls in my mind as I say those words. Preach any Christ but a crucified Christ, and you will not reach men for long. Do anything in ministry, do anything in missions, but preach Christ, and you will not change people. Only Christ 
changes people. We have nothing to tell anyone anywhere in the world except Christ. Stories will entertain, absolutely. But they will not bring transformation. Motivational messages will inspire, but they will not deliver anyone from hell. Water from a well will satisfy physical thirst, but it will never satisfy spiritual thirst. Clothes will make someone presentable at a job, but they will not make him presentable at the throne of Christ. Only Christ will do. Crucified, risen, and coming again. Paul knew only one thing can change a man from the inside out. And so everything he does is to preach Christ only. That's what Paul preached. And as we think about missions emanating out from Grace Bible Church and going overseas, that's what we want. It's a Christ-preaching, Christ-exalting, soul-liberating, hell-delivering ministry. Preach Christ because only Christ changes all people. Preach Christ, fourthly, for the advance of Christ's church. Notice verse 19, as Paul preached, he did so in the power of signs and wonders. Those little phrases, signs and wonders, generally refer to miraculous events, the working of miracles. And so Paul preached, well, Paul says, while he preached, his message was accompanied by miracles and the miraculous. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians 12 that is, that is quite instructive to understand how Paul uses the term here. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, Paul says to the Corinthians, I came to you as an apostle, but how did you know that I was an apostle? Ah, by signs and wonders. So his apostleship was verified, authenticated by the miraculous. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that now the work of the apostle is verified by the work of the word. We see the word, we have the word, and so the miraculous is laid aside. And so Paul in... Romans chapter 15 is asserting, I came to you as a genuine apostle and you knew I was a genuine apostle, not yet having the completed canon of scripture. You knew I was a genuine apostle because of the work of miracles that I performed, attesting to my apostleship. There might be a tendency to say, well, missions and Ground-laying ministry needs to be accomplished, accompanied by signs and wonders. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is simply saying, I came to you with attestation that my message was genuine. Notice also that the emphasis is not on the signs and wonders, but on what signs and wonders, that phrase, in the power of signs and wonders, what verb it modifies and what it modifies is back in verse 18. I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in the power of signs and wonders. 
What's important is what Christ has accomplished. The priority is not the signs and wonders. The, the importance is the accomplishment of Christ that is done in the Gentiles as the gospel has gone forward. And Paul again emphasizes that in verse 19, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. It's all about what Christ and the Spirit have accomplished in the progress of the gospel. What's also noticeable, notable about this verse is that Paul says this to emphasize what the result of his preaching was. And the result is so that as he preached, as his message is authenticated by signs and wonders, as his message is empowered by the Spirit, the result is that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have faithfully preached the gospel of Christ. How far did the gospel go? What was the expanse of the gospel? What was the extent of the gospel? Paul says that gospel started in Jerusalem. Now we know, and here's a map about Paul's ministry, and Jerusalem is way down in the bottom right. And Paul's ministry was not based in Jerusalem. His ministry is actually based in Antioch. If you go straight north of Antioch to the north of the Mediterranean Sea, you see Antioch straight north of Jerusalem. That's where Paul was based. But but Paul was numerous times in Jerusalem. So we know from Galatians 1 that he traveled to Jerusalem. We know from Galatians 2 that he interacted with the leaders in Jerusalem. We know from Acts 9 and other places in Acts that he was in Jerusalem. In fact, in verse 25 of this chapter, he's going to tell us, I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. So he's headed back to Jerusalem again. And I think he says... Jerusalem, not not to demonstrate that that was the base of his ministry, but to simply say that's the furthest reach of his ministry. And it went all the way up to Illyricum. Way up to the north, almost to the left of the screen. And we don't know when he was in Illyricum. The best guess is that it's included in a vague reference in Acts chapter 20. Paul sent for the disciples, Acts 20, verse 1, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. So if you go from Illyricum that I've circled there, just south and a little bit east, you find Macedonia. Macedonia contains Thessalonica and Philippi. He left to go to Macedonia, and when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. The thinking is that while he's in Macedonia, in those districts, traveling around Macedonia, he probably crept up into Illyricum. And the point is that from Jerusalem to Illyricum, Paul's traveled all through those regions a thousand miles, establishing churches all over the place. In fact, he speaks hyperbole hyperbolically, I know that word, and he says, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. He doesn't mean 
that every city is just crammed with churches everywhere between Jerusalem and Illyricum. He just says, every region has a church that I've established and I've preached and the gospel's gone out to all those places and there's a gospel witness available in all of those places. And I'm done. And now I want to go to Rome, just a little bit west of Illyricum. And from Rome, I want to go to Spain so that I can preach the gospel where it hasn't been previously preached. Paul's missionary emphasis is all about advancing the gospel of Christ. He just wants to saturate the world with Christ. And having saturated what God has given him, he wants to keep pushing forward. He wants to keep advancing He wants to keep developing. He wants to keep taking the gospel to new places, the gospel of Christ. This is a reminder to us that really missions at its heart is about going and being sent into foreign places, into cross-cultural settings, and particularly to places that don't have a gospel witness. That's not everything that missions is, but But fundamentally, missions is about going cross-culturally. It's going across the pond to take the gospel to a new place. And when you get there, the gospel, excuse me, when you get there, the ministry is the same as here. It's about the gospel. Ministry in England and Siberia and Papua New Guinea, and Cambodia, and Israel, and all points in between is not different. You don't need gospel for all those places. You need the singular gospel of Christ, and Christ is adequate for all those places. You need to go to new places, but we need to take the same gospel to those new places. Preach Christ. Paul says, for the advance of Christ's church. It's all about advancing and growing and developing Christ's church. Preach Christ because only Christ is the foundation of the church. Verse 20. And thus, because of the way the gospel advanced under his preaching ministry, thus I aspired to preach the gospel. I had ambition. I had an eager desire. I relentlessly wanted to preach one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. But don't give me a church that's established already. Give me a church where Christ isn't already named. Give me a church where there's no gospel witness, where there's no faithful church yet so that I won't build on another man's foundation. Now, Paul is not saying that it's wrong to build on another man's foundation. It's not wrong. He's not saying it's wrong to, to take the foundation of Christ and then build on that. In fact, he tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, according to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. So it's my responsibility to lay a foundation. That's my job. That's my task. That's what I've done. And another is building on it. And he says both are faithful. So don't read this to say, well, if I 
If I build in a place where there's already a gospel witness, I'm unfaithful. No, that's not what he's saying. Paul's just saying my personal yearning, desire, longing is to take the gospel out where nobody has heard it yet. And you'll hear next week. That's not the norm for everybody. But it ought to be the norm for some. Even in this room and out of this church body. Wouldn't it be great. If some would take the gospel. Where Christ isn't yet named. We can't all go. But shouldn't some. Of us go. The foundation that he laid. It's Christ. It's not himself. It's not what he has done. But the foundation is Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 makes it clear that the foundation is Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 makes clear that the foundation is Jesus Christ. You are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the foundation, the cornerstone. It's Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all about what he has done. He's the foundation. And so Paul says, I've laid a foundation and I'm not the foundation. I'm just I'm just the servant to put it down. Pointing people to Jesus Christ. And as I think about missions, as we think about missions here we're committed to building Christ church in Granbury and we're committed to building Christ church overseas. It's all about Christ. In fact, in our missions policy, we say it this way. Simply said, the missionary is someone who is sent with a message of Christ and his forgiveness and freedom. Missions is evangelizing the nations. Consider the Great Commission statements. Matthew's Gospel emphasizes that Jesus' command was to make disciples and teach that converted to obey Christ. Luke records that the responsibility is to testify to the work of Christ on the cross to provide forgiveness for those who repent. And at His ascension, Jesus again emphasizes the responsibility to testify to His person, to His work. The primary task of missions is to take the gospel to unbelieving nations as all three Great Commission passages, Matthew, Luke, and Acts, affirm. Disciples are to be made of all the nations. Repentance and forgiveness is to be proclaimed to all the nations. And the testimony of Christ is to go to the remotest part of the earth. The foundation is Christ. The message is Christ. That's why we go to the nations. Because only He's the foundation. Preach Christ. Because missions has always and only been about Christ. As it is written, Paul's favorite thing to do, I think, in Romans anyway, is to say, hey, this isn't my idea. Just go back to the Old Testament and read the Old Testament. And the Old Testament will tell you what I'm telling you is the truth. The message has always been about Christ. And so, as he's talking about preaching Christ, he validates it by quoting from Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, as you well know, is the chapter before Isaiah 53. I did really well in math. And Isaiah 53 is the great 
song about the suffering servant and the Messiah and his provision of salvation for Israel. In Isaiah 52, we have the introduction at the last three verses of that chapter into Isaiah 53. And so Isaiah introduces this suffering servant. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high, lifted up, greatly exalted. So he's king, he's ruler, he's sovereign, he's over all. At the same time, verse 14, his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. He's suffering, he's afflicted, he's harmed, he's tortured. And yet, verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations The suffering servant is not just for Israel, but he's for the nations, kings of the nations will shut their mouths on account of him. And here's what Paul quotes, for what had not been told them, they will see and what they had not heard, they will understand. The gospel message of the Messiah will go to the nations and the nations will be converted. It was promised in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come not just for Israel, but that he would come to Israel and that the the testimony of Israel's Messiah would go out through the nations. And Paul says, if the Messiah is a Messiah preaching, gospel quoting preacher, then that's what I want to do and take it to the nations. He's just patterning patterning his ministry after the Messiah. If anyone preached the message of Christ, it was the Messiah himself. Missions is always about Christ. It has always, even in the Old Testament, been about Christ. And Paul says, that's what I want to preach. I've got nothing else. How do we sum it up? Missions is sending people into cross-cultural settings. Missions is sending people into cross-cultural settings with the gospel of Christ to build the church of Christ. Brothers and sisters, there are a lot of good things in this world to do. It's fine if people want to send a meal And provide a job. And dig a well. But that's short-sighted. I don't want to send people to hell with well-filled stomachs. And only the gospel is going to change them. As we think about the gospel, this is our priority. This is first. And not only is it a priority, it's a privilege It's a privilege, even for Gentiles. We've been grafted into the promise so that we can share the promise to others. Because of passages like this, we have a particular emphasis in missions. We say it this way. 
The goal for missions at Grace Bible Church is to cultivate a network of missionaries that will expand our global involvement and see people from all nations trust in Christ, love Christ, and live for Christ's glory. It's all about getting people to Jesus. That's what he's designed us to do. And he's given us the message to accomplish it. Thank you, our Father, for your kindness in saving us. The wonder of the gospel message that has saved us. And for the privilege of taking it. Not just across the street in Granbury, for certainly you've called us to do that as well. But also for the privilege of going ourselves at times and sending others to go to other settings, other cultures, other places where they have not heard about Jesus so that they might be liberated from the sin that entangles them to worship Jesus Christ, our Savior. Might you give us boldness with that in sending? And at times, would you even give us boldness in going? For the sake of Christ, in His name we pray.